and then I'll begin uh, the message for this, this morning. Uh, there are handouts that um, Ryan Conzi has. If you did not grab one or would like one, if you just want to put your hand up in the air, it, this is our survey Sunday for the book of Exodus. There's a lot of material on there. You may find it helpful. You also may just want to doodle on something while I talk, right? Um, so just keep your hand up, uh, and those will get passed out to you, and uh, let's, uh, let's pray while those are being handed out. Almighty God, at the feeding of the 5,000, the disciples would distribute the bread, fish, and then they would come back to you for more, but they came back empty-handed. And so we, at the beginning of our week, after a full week that lies behind us, we come back to you empty-handed, and we would ask that you would provide, that you would feed us, that you would give us nourishment for this week. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. O say, does that star-spangled banner yet wave o'er the land of the free? Land of the free. What is freedom? What is liberty? What does it mean to be free? What does it mean to be free politically? What does freedom of speech mean? What do we want it to mean? What does it mean to be free socially, psychologically, spiritually? How do you achieve liberty? And what does freedom look like? Well, the book of Exodus gives us insight into the shape of freedom. In fact, freedom, or we could and perhaps should say, the path or the journey to freedom, it looks like Exodus. Now, just a reminder, this is, we are doing in this series a macro of Exodus and then a few follow-up microcosms of Exodus, looking at specific passages. One of the exciting things about doing a macro or a 30,000-foot view of Exodus is that we get to talk, well, all the books of the Old Testament for that um, purpose, is that we get to talk about entire books of the Bible in very close proximity to one another. So we just recently finished Genesis, and so we get to move into Exodus. But we can line up some of the patterns that we've seen in Exodus with what we see, or in Genesis with what we see in Exodus. We see the shape of freedom. And I want to demonstrate this for you using a few passages. So if you would turn to Genesis chapter 12. We oftentimes think of the book of Exodus as the, as the Exodus. The book of Exodus, well, that's the Exodus, but there are many other Exoduses, Exodi, if you will, in the book of Genesis that actually prepare us for the book of Exodus. So go to Genesis chapter 12 and look at verse 10. If you have a church Bible, it should be on page 9. Genesis 12, beginning at verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman, beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, 
He dealt well with Abram, and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister, so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So, not all of the themes are here, but think of, you can surely recognize some of them. There's this famine in the land, so they go down to Egypt, reminiscent of how Israel and his twelve sons ended up in Egypt in the first place. So they go to Egypt. Then what do we see? Well, there is this deception of Pharaoh and the Egyptians. They deceive, they trick Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Then there is this clear threat to Sarai. And the threats in these Exodus events often happen to the bride, and by necessary consequence, they're, they're uniquely tied to the son or the firstborn. Without the bride, there's no firstborn. In order to have a firstborn, you have to have a bride. So those things kind of go hand in hand. So there's a threat to the bride, therefore to the child, this promised child. Then what did we see? What happens to Pharaoh's house? Plagues. Does that sound familiar, the book of Exodus? Then what do we have? Pharaoh saying, go, get out. And there is this exodus, this deliverance. And does Abram leave shorthanded with less than he came with? No, he actually has plundered the Egyptians and leaves with more than he arrived with. Go to Exodus 18. We see this again in Exodus 18. Ex- or sorry, Genesis 18. My apologies. Genesis 18. We're still in Genesis. We'll get to Exodus, I promise. Genesis 18. Now, I'm not going to read Genesis 18. I want to go read uh, Genesis 19 in a second. But if you just look at Genesis 18, you'll remember that there are these three visitors. Verse 2. Abram lifts his eyes, sees these three, three visitors. This is somewhat of an echo of what we see at the burning, burning bush. There is this meal, and it is clearly unleavened bread, because Abraham says, quick, make some bread. So there's no time for rising. So we have a meal of unleavened bread, which would have been very similar to the Passover meal. And then there's this conversation between Abram and the three visitors. Many link this to Moses' conversation with God at the burning bush. And what is this conversation about? Well, there's this conversation about the threat to the child. There's a threat to the firstborn. What is the threat? Well, the threat is barrenness. Sarah Sarah can't conceive, and so they're coming to say, no, she's she's going to, and then there is this promise of deliverance, all of which you somewhat see in um, Exodus at the burning bush. But now go to uh, Genesis 19. Again, we're paying attention to these, these themes. Genesis 19, verse 1. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting at the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They say, No, we're going to stay in the town square. Lot presses them, and finally they come in. End of verse 3, what do they eat? And they made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people of the last man, surrounded the house. And they called out to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us, that we may know them. Carnally is the idea. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you, and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. 
But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. These are the two angels. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. Now, we, we know this, this story, but let's quickly make some connections. Two messengers come to deliver God's people. Moses and Aaron, these two angels. They're sent in to deliver. There's this meal of unleavened bread. And then what happens? At the doorway, think of the Passover account. At the doorway, there is this threat. Right at the doorway. There is protection for those inside the doorway. And there is destruction for those outside the doorway. And outside the doorway, what are the men struck with? Blindness. The ninth plague, darkness. They are in absolute darkness. And then what does God say to Lot and his family? Escape to the mountain. Where does Israel escape to? With the mountain of God. And those who, in the case of Lot's wife, those who, and Lot's wife didn't just like look behind, like, oh, maybe I forgot and left the oven on. She wasn't turning around to see what was, she was longing for her home. God told her, don't look back, meaning don't long for where you came from. And what does she do? She turns around longing to be back in Sodom and Gomorrah, turned into a pillar of salt. What happened to those in the wilderness who longed for Egypt? They perished. They were left in the wilderness. All right, uh, let's go to the Akeda. Uh, Genesis 22, a couple pages over, page 16. A little different, but you still hear similar themes. This is the sacrifice of Isaac, right? You have in this the threat to the firstborn. Now it's God who tells Abraham what to do. Then you have deliverance by the messenger of God. And the angel says, stay your hand, Abraham. You have provision of a sacrifice, just like at the Passover. Then you have this worship scene on the mountain. And then you have this deliverance and provision with a ram that they did not have when they went up there. So they end, they end, they leave with more than what they had. You see that in Exodus 22. Also go, or uh, Genesis 22, also go to Genesis 31. Genesis 31, you can just glance there. I just want to do this quickly. But this is the scene where Jacob flees from Laban. He realizes that he can't get out, that he's stuck here, he's trapped here. He's gone through the seven years for Leah, seven years for Rachel. This, and remember, that the reason why Jacob ran away was this threat of Esau. And we spoke about that recently. This threat of Esau to kill him is what forced him to leave. So he runs to a foreign land, to sojourn in a foreign land. This threat of Esau brings him. He's held captive by deceitful Laban, working, enslaved is the idea, by Laban. And he, he's trying to escape with his bride, with the woman that he loves. He's been enslaved by Laban. Then what happens while he's enslaved by Laban? He's actually blessed while Laban is cursed. Jacob's flocks, they just start procreating like mad, whereas Laban ends up with less. You can think of the plagues where God is cursing Egypt and blessing growing Israel and sparing them from those curses. Then there is this escape in the night where they run away. Jacob and his family escapes from Laban. And, important, there's also the scene where Laban finally catches up with Jacob as he's traveling with a huge group of people and a bunch of little kids. And they finally meet up, and Laban says, Look, someone took the household gods. 
was Rachel, they're in the, under her saddle, in her saddlebag. And Jacob says, search. If, if, if you find them, kill the person, take them, whatever. We, we didn't take any of, your, any of your household gods. And so he's searching, and he asks his daughter, Laban asks his daughter to get up, and she, what does she say? Well, I'm on my period, and the, I can't get up. Well, where are the false gods? They're underneath her. What is the idea? This is humiliation for the gods. Humiliation for the false gods. Now, if you look, if some of you have that handout that was passed out, I want to go over a few of these major themes, just somewhat in order. These are patterns that we recognize as part of an Exodus event. First, oftentimes there's a threat that drives people, the people of God, from their home. Then there is an assault on the woman and her seed by a serpent. Okay, the woman and her seed are connected. Oftentimes there is deception used to outwit the serpent. God's people are enslaved. God will then bless and protect his people. Another way to say, see blessing is protection. While cursing or plaguing his enemies. God then intervenes to save or deliver his people. And then oftentimes you'll find that the serpent will begin shifting blame and accusing the righteous. We got our first taste of that in our bulletin when the people of Israel, they're brought out and they say, they see Pharaoh behind them and they go, what'd you do, Moses? There weren't enough graves in Egypt. It'd be better that we stayed there. So the serpent tries to shift blame and try to trick the people of God. There is the humiliation of false gods as part of an exodus event seen with Laban and the household gods. God's people in Exodus events often depart with spoils. They enter a holy land and they establish a site of worship. Now, if you look at the third point, deception is used to outwit the serpent. I just want to point how this motif, this theme, you'll hear this throughout, uh, throughout the Bible. Uh, God's people oftentimes trick or deceive the forces that enslave them. And remember... This is kind of building on, or this is kind of an inverse of the motif we saw in Genesis 3, because it was the woman who was deceived by the serpent. And then throughout the rest of Scripture, you often see it is the woman, the women, or the bride of Christ, who is actually doing the deceiving of the serpent. So, think of these instances. Sarai deceiving Pharaoh and Abimelech, we read that. Rebekah deceiving Abimelech, that's a same story with Isaac. Then Rebekah deceives Isaac. Remember, Isaac is spiritually blinded. He knows who the blessing should go to. And Rebekah deceives Isaac by clothing Jacob in goat's hair. Micah, the daughter of Saul, will also use goat's hair to deliver David when Saul is trying to kill him. She puts that goat hair in the bed and makes a false body in there and says, oh, he's sick. It delays them. Finally, they get sick and tired of waiting on the sick guy. They go in there, and the goat hair, it wasn't David's actual hair, and he escaped. Rahab, two messengers, just like Moses, Aaron, the, the angels that come into Sodom and Gomorrah, two messengers, in this case spies, come into the city. There's a mark put on her window, this cord. This is the mark to the entrance of her home, her home in the wall of Jericho. She deceives the men looking for the spies. We can think about Esther deceiving Haman. And in Exodus chapter 1, we hear this theme again. What do Shifra and Pua do? The midwives. They're supposed to go and kill the babies that are born, these male firstborn babies. They're supposed to go and throw them in the Nile. What do they do? They go, oh, Pharaoh, these, these Hebrew women are very vigorous. And they give birth and it's too late. We show up late. Can't, we just can't get there in time. 
clearly deception. It's also interesting to notice. We're given the name Shifra and Pua. Anyone know what Pharaoh's name is? Pharaoh just means king. We're not given his name. The idea being, whose names really matter? Whose names matter? Shifra and Pua, their names matter. That's who we should be paying attention to. Now, this theme of deception or trickery uh, also comes up in the early church fathers when they look at the death of Jesus on the cross. They actually viewed this, in some ways, as a trap or a trick, a deceit, a ploy on Satan. The, the, The crucifixion of Christ on the cross was a trap set majestically to get Satan and to overcome sin, hell, and death. But more to that when we get to the book of Job. The point being, there are these musical, right on time, these musical themes that play over and over again. They're supposed to get our attention as we read all of Scripture. So look at that list again. There's a threat. There's an assault. We'll see deception is used with the serpent. God's people are enslaved. Then there's this protection and blessing versus cursing the enemies. God will intervene to save his people, which often involves humiliation of the gods. And then what we will find oftentimes throughout Scripture, is the serpent or a serpent shifting blame and accusing the righteous or the deliverers. God's people leave the land with more than they came with and they enter into a place of worship. These are the themes we should be listening for throughout, throughout Holy Scripture. Now, it would feel somewhat incomplete, even in doing a survey of Exodus, to not discuss, even if not for very long, Uh, the plagues. So I want to spend some time here. A large part of the beginning of this story, and we'll deal with some of the problems of only looking at the plagues, but a large part of the beginning of the story has to do with the plagues that come on Egypt. A few things to bear in mind. How many plagues are there? Ten. How many commandments are there? Ten. There's a purpose contrast there. It's juxtaposed that way. The contrast is set up, the similarity, the parallel is set up, so we recognize what brings death and what brings life. Ten plagues versus the ten words of the Debarim of God. Now, there is a way to view the plagues, which is somewhat interesting. Um, Alistair, Alistair Roberts proposes this, that there's actually three cycles of three plagues. So, three times three, nine, good followed by a capstone plague, the tenth plague, the death of the firstborn. And he thinks that this perhaps mirrors creation, where in creation you have two sets of three, and then this capstone day of the Sabbath. I think it's an interesting interesting parallel. Now one of the things to pay attention to as you read the plagues is that they move in a similar direction as creation. There's a certain ground level or beginning point that we spring off of. Genesis 1.1 The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then there's movement to the creation of the earth, and then heavens, and animals, and man. We could frame it this way. The plagues begin at the basement of the house of Egypt, and they move to the roof, the destruction of Egypt's rafters. There is this progression that mirrors creation. There's also logical progression of the plagues. There is movement from blood to frogs to gnats or lice. There's this gradual movement to flies. What what are we we doing? Well, we're going from primordial waters, starting with the waters of the Nile, and where are we moving? We're moving in the end to the very heavens. Now, 
This is a striking contrast to the ten words, or the ten Devarim. The ten words begin with, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make any graven images. We begin with God, and by the time we've gotten to the tenth word, what are we dealing with? Coveting our neighbor's possessions. The ten words go from God and move to us. The ten plagues move from us all the way up to the very heavens, up to God. God destroys his enemies from the ground up, whereas God saves his people by coming down. Now, this reveals one other principle of the Exodus story, and that is uh, the principle of escalation. The principle of escalation. We see escalation in two primary areas. The conflict escalates between God and the dragon, or God and Egypt, and the relationship between God and his bride escalates. So there's escalation in two ways. Conflict escalates, and the relationship escalates. First, let's deal with the conflict. You'll notice, if you go to Exodus, and again, you can just be in the first few chapters to see this, after the genealogy, in chapter 6, genealogies, those should always be, pay attention to those. Those are kind of like family reunions. And whenever there are family reunions in Scripture, something big is coming. Something huge is coming. These, all these families getting together from generations past, pay attention. Something's about to happen. And so what happens? Well, one of the things we see is that Moses and Aaron go before Pharaoh and his magicians. And what happens? Well, they do these in the lepr- leprous hand and the, the staff that turns to a snake. And what do the magicians do? Well, they imitate all of that until Aaron's staff devours their staves. But there's this competition, and at one level you have Aaron and Moses, primarily Aaron at the, at the beginning, and he's kind of fighting, going against the magicians. That's the level of, of the conflict. But then, as you move towards the fifth and sixth plague, Aaron kind of falls behind. The magicians in the sixth plague, they come to Pharaoh and say, hey, we can't keep up. This is beyond us. This is a God thing. We, we don't know what's happening. We've got to get out of here. So the magicians and Aaron kind of fall into the background, and Moses and Pharaoh take the foreground. So we're escalating in conflict. And then, as we move forward, one of the things that becomes clear, and we'll get to this in a moment, is that we move even past Pharaoh and Moses, and it becomes a conflict between the gods. More to that in a minute. I want to spend some time in the first plague very quickly, because I want us to pay attention or notice one thing, one connection that we can just, because we know the story so well, we almost forget. The first plague, that is the Nile turning to blood. But remember before that happens, what was the order in Egypt to do with the male children of Israel? They were to be thrown in the Nile. The Nile turning to blood? Well, the Nile is a graveyard. It's a graveyard of infant Hebrew boys. And one of the things that's happening in the first plague is that the blood of these Israelite children, the blood of these innocents, is coming up. The blood of these holy innocents, like Abel's, is crying out for justice. In other words, you can see the Nile being turned to blood as God saying, no longer will he allow Egypt's crime to be hidden. It is exposed. God has seen Egypt's evil. It has been revealed, and they will pay the price. And then there is this logical progression from 
the first plague to the other plagues. This isn't random. Okay? Frogs aren't just like, hmm, what should I do to make the Egyptians miserable? Frogs are a good idea. No. Where do you move from? You move from water to an amphibious creature. So these amphibious creatures come out of the water. They come forth, and now they're plagued. They've been in blood-polluted water. They come forth, and then they all die in heaps everywhere, returning back to the earth. And more than likely, the third is lice. This lice is presumably bred out of the dead bodies of the frogs. I mean, some way this just makes sense. The progression makes sense. You have defiled water of murder. These amphibious creatures swarm and cover and defile. And then the ground itself in the lice begins to crawl. The ground, these crawling insect creatures, are given wings as flies cover the earth. And then eventually, as those flies cover the earth and then they die, well, where do you find lots of flies but around all kinds of beasts and livestock? So now the possessions of mankind are plagued and afflicted. The land animals become diseased. And what happens when animals become diseased? Well, generally, people become diseased. And so the mankind is dealing with these boils, these sores, this disease that is all over their actual body. And then we begin to move beyond man. And we start with the waters. We move beyond man into the very heavens. And the first layer of the heavens rains down hail upon both man and beast. And as the plagues even rise further, one of the gods of Egypt was actually Seth, Set. He was the god of chaos, the god of disorder, and he was the god of storms. So it makes sense that this hail coming from Yahweh is a direct challenge to Seth's authority. He was also in part of his godhead, the Set figure. He would bring the chaos and the disorder of something like a plague of locusts, which that's what we find next, is that Israel... Israel's God is sending the locusts on the Egyptians, not Set sending it on Egypt's enemies. Now, one tangent with the locusts, because this is very interesting. The locusts seems to be a metaphor or analogy for Israel itself. Uh, If you look at the plague of the locusts, if you want to turn there, we're at 8, I believe, so yeah, chapter 10. In chapter 10, The locusts are brought about, if you look at verse 13, So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. When it was morning, the east wind had brought the locusts. And what do the locusts do? Well, they they cover or they swarm the entire land. Now, remember, at the very beginning, what was Pharaoh, what was Egypt's issue with all these Hebrews? They were multiplying. They were everywhere. And they were covering the land. Egypt viewed the Hebrews like a swarm of creepy crawlies that needed to be eradicated, like bugs, like an infestation. Well, what does God do with the locusts? Look at verse then 19. And the Lord turned the wind. This is uh, Exodus 10, verse 19. And the Lord turned the wind into a very strong west wind, which lifted the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Not a single locust was left in all the country of Egypt. Because what is God going to do with Israel? Israel was viewed as these creepy crawlies all over this infestation in Egypt. What is God going to do with Israel? Or he's going to take them out to where not a single one will be left. He will deliver them out of Egypt. So just as he's dealing with the locusts, that is how he's going to deal with, with the Israelites, with his people. He's going to get them all out of Egypt. It's an interesting connection. 
So in these plagues, we mentioned we're moving from waters to amphibious creatures to the dust moving to flies to then animals to people to the skies. And then we move even to the realm of space in the ninth plague as God turns the lights out in Egypt. Ra was the sun god of Egypt. He was the god of life and the god of light. And so this conflict, we mentioned this escalation of conflict, well, who is really in charge of the light? Ra or Yahweh? Yahweh makes it abundantly clear. And then finally, the tenth plague, well, the Egyptians viewed Pharaoh as a type of incarnation of Ra himself. He was the son of Ra. He was the god of gods because he was the future of the gods in the sun, uh, uh, the sun literally of the sun of Ra himself. So, for the death of the firstborn to take place, the death of Pharaoh, that was as if God himself died, as if the premier god in all of Egypt died. Now, the plagues are magnificent, fascinating, and that is barely scratching the surface of all that we could do with them. But I want to run past them somewhat quickly, because maybe it's implicit, maybe it's just because the plagues are far more exciting than the building of the tabernacle. But we can, we can overemphasize the beginning of this, or we can shrink the story into thinking that all that happens is God delivers his people from Egypt and smashes them with plagues. And yay, God's people are free. But God doesn't rescue his bride from the dragon and then step out into the next scene and go, all right, see ya. Have a nice life, woman. I did my pit. It's not the way it works. The rescue from Egypt, well, it's really only the first quarter of the book, maybe a third of Exodus. So I would encourage you to see the entire shape of the story, perhaps a little bit differently. And I think it's best to see the shape of the story in the, through the lens of the shape of all great love stories. Perhaps St. George and the Dragon type of love stories. Now what happens with St. George? Well, the bride is the virgin, the maiden, is in the dragon's lair, as well as a whole bunch of gold. Dragons like gold. And the knight must go to her. He must go away from the protection of his walls. He has to go into the very lair of the dragon himself, and he has to fight the dragon. Now, dragons are interesting creatures uh, because they're a combination of basically every type of predator that we know. They fly, like some predatorial birds, They have huge claws, like predatory cats. They have a tail. Their whole body has looked like a snake. And they have poison and they breathe out fire. So it's like a bird, snake, tiger, alligator, all combined. It's a a total predator, a dragon. No weaknesses. And St. George, if we're using that illustration, which we are, he has to fight the dragon at every level. He has to deal with the wings. He has to deal with the tail, the claws, the mouth, the venom, and the fire. And then when he kills the dragon... What has he won? The hand of the virgin, his bride, and a whole bunch of gold. And they are married. There are festivities. And then they live happily ever after. Now allow me to suggest that this here in the book of Exodus, this is the great fairy tale of Israel. If you want to look at at Exodus, you begin in chapters 1. We'll go quickly. I'll just kind of survey this. Chapters 1 through 6 are roughly this bondage, this captivity by the dragon. Chapters 7 through 12, about verse 32, 
the plagues. This is the fight with the dragon. And God is destroying the dragon of Egypt at every single level, from the basement to the rafters. Every single level, these gods are being humiliated. Chapters 15 to 18, you see courtship between God and his bride, God and his people, with provision, water, and manna. And then chapters 19 through 24, and I would encourage you to go to 24. I know we're moving quickly. That's what surveys do. Go to chapter 24 and look at verse 3. Uh, 19 through 24 is essentially the marriage ceremony. This is the wedding that you go to. And there's a covenant made between God's people and God. And in 24, verse 3, the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. You could superimpose a modern day, I do, in verse 3. This is the wedding ceremony taking place. They are married. And then what do we see in verse 11? God does not destroy these people, despite that they're in His presence. They behold God, and they ate and drank. This is the reception. This is the party after the wedding. Well, what does a couple do after they get married? They get married, they have a party, and then they move in together. So chapters 25 through 39, until the inspection in chapter 40, are about the house that God and His people... There's cooperation here. God and His people will build and will live in for the remainder of their days. And you can notice some contrasts with the beginning of the book and the end. Remember, at the beginning of the book of Exodus, Israel, they're building as slaves storage houses for Pharaoh. At the end of the book, it's a bride setting up her home, getting all the gifts from her wedding registry putting everything in order, preparing a place to live with her husband. At the beginning of the book, they are serving Pharaoh as slaves. Now they are literally wedded to God. At the beginning of the book, their master, their enslaver, was throwing their firstborn sons into the Nile. Now, they will be welcoming children into the new household of God. At the beginning, they are in bondage. And at the end... They are free. Now, when we read stories, we are hardwired to try and find ourselves in the story. We do this with movies. We do this with short stories, larger stories. We try to find ourselves. We try to identify with a character or a people. Who are we in the story? Well, there is a now famous saying about the book of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy It goes like this. Getting the people out of Egypt is easier than getting Egypt out of the people. Because as you will see, as we will see together, yes, a tyranny has fallen in Egypt. Utterly, basement to rafters, that tyranny is gone. And where does that leave you? Well, carrying your house on your back in a desert. Bereft with trials and tribulations, no foundations, No permanent structure. You just keep moving and journeying. And we mentioned that the plagues are God's attack, not on just the magicians or on Pharaoh, but the plagues are God's attacks on the false gods of Egypt. The modern people have a hard time with this. How how do people believe in false gods? How do people have false gods? Well, I would suggest it is better to think of these false gods, I'm doing air quotes around false, It's best to think of these as personalities. 
personalities. There are certain drives, desires, instincts that were recognized by ancient peoples as powerful. Thus, powers that would possess people like a personality. And the idea for these ancient people was that these powers came from a being who was this pure power himself. And you can actually think of yourself as many personalities. Anger. You've never been possessed by the god of anger? Of course you have. Lust, sexual desire, or even basic fertility, the desire to have a baby. Has that power never just completely consumed someone? Thoughts, their ideas? The desire of survival for those on the brink of death, for water for those who are thirsty. The Egyptians, like the Babylonians and the Sumerians, they had gods for each of these desires, these personalities that quite often overtake us. People are possessed by power, philosophy, or wisdom. My daughter, a few weeks ago, we had been reading through some Greek mythology, talking about Zeus as kind of this powerful figure, Athena as the goddess of wisdom, Artemis, the goddess of hunting or survival. Some are bloodthirsty. I think even Esau. Some are possessed by the ocean, the sea, Poseidon. So we've been talking about these kind of things. And uh, out of the shower, I was drying Macy's hair, and she said to me, Dad, who is your second favorite god? Our knee-jerk reaction might be, that's cute, ridiculous, but cute. But slow down. Everyone here has a second favorite god. A feeling, a personality, a desire that possesses you, that overcomes you. Is it power? Is it lust? Is it possessions, uh, the fertility of your bank account? We all have motivations that drive our actions. It is a legitimate question to ask yourself, what is your second favorite God? Your stomach? Your influence? Your position? Your security? Your reputation? There are gods that possess each and every one of us. There are gods that we worship. And here is the painful truth. If we are going to be free, if we are going to be liberated, it will take the utter humiliation of that God. The utter humiliation of all the false personalities that we worship, that we allow to possess us. If we are going to find rest, there will have to be the humiliation of our second favorite God. And this is what Jesus came to do. From the basement to the rafters to undo us. To utterly humiliate and put to shame all that we worship other than Him. And in this humiliation of your second favorite God, don't think that you will come out unscathed. Don't think that there will not be humiliation and shame and loss. Now, as we come to the table, 
there are many themes that we could play on, many themes that we could touch on. But let us remember just one this morning. When Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration with Elijah and Moses, he spoke of literally his exodus. Now we would be short-sighted to think that he only meant his leaving this world in death, departing from Egypt, defeating sin. The exodus of Jesus is his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his pouring out of the Spirit upon the world. In the exodus of Jesus, in our exodus, and in the exodus of Israel, the waters of the abyss are ripped open so that we might walk through death itself and come out on dry land. We will, we will be pursued by a pharaoh, a Satan, a dragon. Our hope is that he will be drowned. And then we are led to new creation on the other side. Every Sunday, we take this bread, we take this cup, and we remember the marriage ceremony of God to his people. We are wed together. He rescued us, and he desires relationship with us. He wants to spend the rest of his life with us in sickness and in health, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer. Your rescue, if you have been rescued, is the beginning of your life, not the end. If you have been rescued by Jesus, then you have to work out and live into the meaning of and they lived happily ever after. Beloved in Christ, this is the Lord's Supper. This meal does not belong to Sand Hills Presbyterian Church. It does not belong to the men who serve you. It does not belong only to Presbyterians. It is the Lord's. And it belongs to all those who have been baptized, all those who seek to set up their home, their life, with the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of rescue. Almighty Father, we do not presume to come to your table trusting in our own righteousness, but in your manifold and great mercies. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under your table, but you are the same Lord whose property is always to have mercy. Grant us, therefore, gracious Lord, that as we eat the flesh of your dear Son, Jesus Christ, and drink his blood, that we would set up our homes, that we would recognize that we are wed to our beloved God, and that we would live hereafter in the light of new creation. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.